Today's reading is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 56. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob for ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfilment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verse 16 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Father, as we look at your breathed out scripture this morning that comes from your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us that you would reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness, that we might be faithful servants of you and your son, Jesus. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. Who said that? Well, it wasn't me. Uh, It was Muhammad Ali. And one might agree with him that he was the greatest boxer of all time. Many would say that. Uh, Though there would be some argument from others. But who is the greatest person who ever lived? There are plenty of contenders throughout history. There are many people who thought themselves great, like Muhammad Ali. And there are many that are thought great by others. The Bible makes this claim. It makes it crystal clear that there is one man in history who is utterly unique and truly and indisputably the greatest. Our friend Luke, a doctor, a historian, has set out an orderly account for us of this man's life. His purpose is to give us certainty about this one man, who he is, what he's done. And as we go through this account, Luke will show him to be, without doubt, the greatest person who has ever lived. But the surprise of Luke's story is that this man doesn't begin with greatness. It begins very humbly Let's look at it together, verse 26 to 31. Uh, there's, a, there's an order of service, by the, uh, sorry, uh, in the order of service uh, that you can click on the link under the YouTube uh, video. It will tell you the points of uh, this sermon to help you through. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 31, the humble beginning of Jesus. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Gabriel is busy. Uh, This angel who appeared in the previous section appeared to Zechariah to announce the conception of John the Baptist. He now appears in the sixth month of uh, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth's pregnancy in a place called Nazareth. And the word city there in that first verse is a little bit misleading for us. Nazareth is a small town. It's a village, really. Uh, Perhaps maybe 500 people at most living there. Nazareth is so unimportant, in fact, that it's never mentioned in the entire Old Testament. The region of Galilee is a country backwater on the trade crossroads. It's as far from the seat of power in Jerusalem as you can get in Israel. Nothing interesting ever happens there. And Gabriel, one of God's most important angels, is sent by God to this obscure, middle-of-nowhere place 
to meet not an important person, no king or politician or celebrity or influencer, but a poor young peasant woman, a teenage girl called Mary. In that culture, her social status is next to zero. It's a humble beginning. Gabriel comes not to power, but to weakness. And his message to Mary is one of God's grace to the lowly. Verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. Now, when angels appear in the Bible, they do one of two things. They either smite things down or they appear with a message from God. But either way, they're awesome creatures. The sight of one always brings fear to the one who sees it. And Mary certainly feels that too. But this angel's not come to harm her. He comes to bless her. That word favour there that's repeated twice in those verses is the same root word that's often translated grace. The word means undeserved kindness. God's going to bless Mary, not because she deserves it for being an especially fine person, but because of his grace towards her. The reformer Martin Luther puts what Gabriel says as something like this. Oh Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. Now, a bit of a, a sidebar for a moment. Let me talk about Mary. Sadly, she's often been misunderstood, most of all by the Catholic Church. Hail Mary, full of grace, goes the well-known Catholic prayer. Now, that comes directly from these verses. It's a mistranslation of these verses, in fact, in the Latin Bible. It treats Mary as a repository of grace, someone who has a kind of grace in herself that she can then dispense to those who pray to her. But that's not what this passage says, is it? Mary's not the source of grace. She's the recipient of grace. She receives undeserved kindness from God. So Catholicism gets this wrong. Mary can't give the grace of God to anyone else. She's not without sin. She doesn't remain a virgin throughout her life. She can't be prayed to, nor can she offer help in our redemption. Catholicism teaches that, but that's not what the Bible says. What Luke says is that she is just like us, saved by grace alone. In the context of Luke's gospel, she's the first of many examples of a person who has nothing that they can offer God, yet is one on whom he sets his favour, his grace, and chooses to use for his purposes. There will be lots of other unworthies in this gospel account, just like her. Okay, so sidebar over. Just notice this. 
that God sets his grace upon the lowly. And that's something of a pattern for the God of the Bible. Just listen to the words of Paul to the Corinthian Christians uh, just a few years later. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the God of the Bible, the God that we worship. He's a God who delights to choose that which is nothing in the world's eyes, through his grace alone, to do his great works. He likes to work with the lowly. Isn't that good news for us? There's no better example of that than Mary. Mary's a nobody with nothing to offer from the middle of nowhere, and God gives her the greatest honour that any human being has ever been given. He chooses her to bear his son, Jesus. Verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is a humble beginning and a wonderful instance of God's grace to humanity. And now as the angel continues to speak, we begin to see just how unique and how great this person Jesus is as we are given insight into his wondrous incarnation. This is our second point, verse 32 to 35, the wondrous incarnation of Jesus. Now, I know that at the moment we're getting a bit sick of announcements, aren't we? Um, We've seen something of that over the last year. Every week we seem to have an announcement about this, an announcement about that. And the problem is that all the announcements we have at the moment seem to be bad news. Well, these verses are called often the Annunciation, the the announcement from Gabriel of the coming of Jesus. But don't worry, it's not bad news. It comes in two parts. It's broken in the middle by Mary's question of verse 34. Let me read it again to you, verse 32 to 35. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, Well, how will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I mean, this is really staggering news, isn't it? Can you imagine? Mary will conceive a child in her womb. Now, think back to last week. Uh, We saw there uh, the announcement we had of John the Baptist's conception. But this is even more staggering than this. I mean, that was a miracle. Elizabeth was barren. She was past childbearing age. But at least she was married. She could engage in doing the things that you'd normally do to get a baby. But Mary's a virgin. 
She's engaged to be married, but she's living God's way. She's staying sexually pure until her wedding day. How will this be, she asks, since I'm a virgin? If you can think back to last week, her question sounds a little bit like Zechariah's question, but it's not the same. His was full of skepticism and doubt about the angel's words. Hers is simply one of clarification. How? How will this work? And the answer comes back to her. Nothing is impossible with God. This will be achieved by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's so much in these few verses. I want to note four big truths that Gabriel announces here about this tiny fetus that lives inside Mary's womb. Four great truths. His purpose, his greatness, his identity, and his destiny. Number one, his purpose. Gabriel needs no ultrasound machine. Uh, He knows it's going to be a boy. And there's never been a gender reveal quite like it. He tells Mary that the boy's name will be Jesus. And that's the first hint that we're given in Luke of his purpose, that he will be the saviour of his people, because that's what the name Jesus means. This child will be the saviour. He will save his people from their sins. Secondly, his greatness. Very simple statement. He will be great. No caveats, no relativity, no great at this or great at that. Just great. And third, here's the main point of, uh, that Gabriel reveals. His identity. Who is this baby? He is the Son of the Most High. The Son of God himself. And his body is to be fashioned in the womb of Mary by the creative power of the Holy Spirit. And in this announcement, we have two of the greatest doctrines of Christianity found together. We have the Trinity and the Incarnation. See, what was something of a mystery in the Old Testament, something not yet fully understood, is now revealed fully by Gabriel to this teenage girl. Mary is truly blessed. She is the first human being to have revealed to her in absolute clarity that God is Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The child to be given her is none other than God the Son. He's sent by God the Father and is conceived in her by the power of God the Holy Spirit. And then she has revealed to her even more. She's told about what Christians call now the incarnation. That's the truth that when God the Son enters Mary's womb, he takes on flesh. He adds a human nature to his divine nature. This baby is both fully God, God is his father, and fully human, Mary is his mother. The God who made all human beings has now entered our world and become one himself. 
just astonishing. His purpose, saviour, his greatness, his identity as the son of God, and then finally his destiny. She's told that in fulfilment of the ancient prophecy given to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that this child is the king of all Israel, the king that Israel has been waiting for for centuries. He'll be given by God, the, the, by God the Father, the kingdom of David, the house of Jacob, and his kingdom shall never, ever end. His purpose to save humanity, his greatness, the greatest of human beings, his identity, God the Son, and his destiny to be the king of an everlasting kingdom. You see how just astonishing this all is, how wondrous it all is. But let's just ask a question. Why does Luke want us to know this, do you think? Why does he want us to know? He doesn't have to include this. In fact, the other gospel accounts don't include this. They include other things about the origin and identity of Jesus. So why does he put this in his gospel? Well, we were told in uh, verses 1 to 4 that he's writing an orderly account, account sourced from eyewitnesses, in this case Mary, and that he's writing it in order that we might know the certainty of the things that we've been taught, that we might be sure of what we believe, in particular what we believe about Jesus and what he has accomplished among us while he lived on earth. That's verse, verse 1. Now the author C.S. Lewis, in his book on miracles, he called the incarnation the grand miracle. No miracle is greater than this. But more than that, no miracle is possible without this. It starts here. Explain. If we accept the truth of the incarnation, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, then that makes sense of all that follows in this gospel account. See, Lewis pointed out that we might find the miracles of Jesus difficult to believe because they're not things that a mere man can do. No mere man can make the lame walk or the deaf hear or the blind see. No mere human being can feed 5,000 people with a few bits of bread and a couple of fish or drive out demons or calm a storm with a word or raise the dead. We couldn't do them, certainly. No one could, were they a mere man. But when we realise that Jesus is not merely a man, that he is the God-man, well, then the miracles suddenly make sense. They all flow from this first miracle. Of course he can do them. Look at who he is. But it's not just the miracles. At the end point of the gospel, this all makes sense of things. If Jesus is just a man, then he is a sinner like all men of Adam's line. And therefore, he cannot die as a substitute for sinners like us, for he'd have his own sin that he must pay for. And if he's just a man, of course, he can't rise from the dead. 
But the angel told Mary that he is holy, that he was conceived by the Spirit of God, and that as the Son of God, therefore, he has not inherited the sin and guilt of Adam. He's not born in sin as we are. And so he can die for our sins. And so he can defeat death and rise to new life. Luke's going to prove through the rest of his account that the word of God that was sent with Gabriel to Mary is absolutely true. Just read on and you will see with absolute certainty that this indeed is who Jesus is. So that's the wondrous incarnation. Finally, we come to our final few verses, verse 36 to 38, and what we see here is the model response to the news about Jesus. Now, we noted earlier on that that Catholicism makes too much out of Mary, that it semi-deifies her. And we've got to steer clear of such idolatry but what should we make of her? What does Luke want us to see about her? He wants us to see that she is a model of how we must respond to the news about Jesus, to the gospel. In verse 36 and 37, the angel graciously gives Mary a sign to reassure her that what he said would take place. Verse 36 Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. But now listen to her response to all that has been told her. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is a better response than many of the great men of the Bible. When called by God, Moses asked if someone else could go instead. Gideon said he was too weak and puny to do it. Jeremiah said that he was too young. And last week, Zechariah, an older man, a priest of God in the temple of Jerusalem, he gets similar news But he responds with scepticism and with doubt. And the angel mutes him for nine months to think about it. But here we get none of that with teenage Mary in little old Nazareth. She is an example for Luke's readers to follow in two ways. First of all, she's an example to follow in who she knows herself to be before God. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. There's no pretension, there's no airs and graces, no thinking too highly of herself. She is humble. I'm just a servant, nothing more. I'm here to serve you, Lord, she says to God. And Luke's going to make much of the identity of servanthood in his gospel. It's often on the lips of the faithful. Uh, We're going to meet a faithful old man called Simeon in a couple of weeks' time. And this is how he defines himself as the Lord's servant. 
Jesus will speak in parables often, and, and in those parables, he'll normally talk about the faithful uh, people, those who love God, as servants of God. And Jesus will say this in Luke 17 to his disciples of the attitude that they should take towards themselves. He says, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I wonder, is this who you think of yourself as before God? Is this how you define yourself? I'm just a servant. I'm an unworthy servant. I'm here to serve the Lord. Secondly, it is that view of herself that allows Mary to humbly accept the word of God for her, no matter how hard the duty she is being asked to perform. Let it be to me according to your word. And what a statement that is. See, great privilege though it is to be asked to bear God's son, don't underestimate just how hard this word was for Mary to keep. It was a scandal for an unmarried teenager to get pregnant in the culture that she's in. It puts her betrothal at risk. It surely occurs to her that Joseph is likely to call it off. And in fact, it's not without the intervention of Gabriel that he doesn't. It's going to sound crazy to many people, just like it does today, and it will make her a source of ridicule in her village. It will shame her before others, and likely it will follow her as a rumour for all of her life. It will cost her to keep this word. And yet she says, let it be to me according to your word. I believe your word, and what you've said to me, I will accept as your will for my life, no matter what it costs. Her response is the response of faith. Simple faith, taking God at his word and saying, yes, I will obey. See, with this, Luke lays before us his application. Do we accept this word about Jesus? Do we believe what the angel says about who he is the Saviour, the Son of God, the King, the greatest man who ever lived. Will we respond to this word with simple faith, expressed in obedience as servants of the Lord? Let's pray. Lord God, this passage in many ways is too wondrous for us. There's so much here about what you have revealed about your son Jesus. And so Lord, as we think on this over the course of this next week, please do keep bringing this to our minds. Help us to turn it over in our minds to keep on growing in our knowledge and love of him. But Lord too, would you place it in our hearts by your spirit to follow the example of Mary in this passage, that we would take you at your word and accept your will for us, no matter what the cost might be. 
Lord God, we come before you and we say that we are your servants. Let it be done according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.